Hey guys, so this week, Kristen and Jocelyn and I talk about attachment theory, which is a theory that a psychologist came up with about um, how children form positive attachments when they're infants and how that affects who they are as adults. Awesome conversation. Uh, Kristen could only give me an hour, but I took it. And I, it was a great, great podcast. Their resilience-based parenting is uh, starting up another series again. If you are interested in that, you can. Do, uh, we we are offering two scholarships through Wife of the Party. You can go to MacDermottMethod.com slash W-O-T-P. That's Mac, M-A-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T, Method.com slash W-O-T-P. And there's a form to fill out if you're interested in the scholarship. Please Please take the scholarship if you really need the scholarship. If not, um, look into purchasing the program. It's a wonderful resource. They also have a healing broken teen and parent relationship um, workshop that's coming up. Uh, you can sign up on their mailing list at resiliencebasedparenting.com. And um, the information for this will be in the description of this podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode with me and Jocelyn and Kristen. look so good it's good to see you good to see you and i love that when you're when you're not your video's not on you have these beautiful headshots and mine is a picture of my cat (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny we can tell who's professional in this group i'm gonna i'm gonna change my background a little bit so you guys don't have to look at that Uh, it's a beautiful fireplace no thank you yeah um, I'm just warning you, I have this annoying cough and I have so much cough medicine in my body, but hopefully I won't have a little cough attack. That's, That's okay. so funny. When you first spoke, I thought she has a cold. It's so irritating. So sexy. It's not COVID. I swear. I already had COVID and I took a test. It's just an annoying cold, but it's like, I have like, you know, mucinex and Advil cold inside all this stuff in my body. So hopefully I'll just suppress all the symptoms and just sound like Demi Moore and <laughs> Whatever sexy Perfect. movie she always sounded good. But in. wait, you had COVID? I did a few couple months, end of summer. Yeah. yeah. She just told me this yesterday too. I'm like, you had COVID and you're just now like, oh yeah, by the I way, know. COVID. It was really not that big of a deal. And like you would like actually I I worked and did video stuff and everything and like no one knew. Like this wow. is you know, yeah, you couldn't tell it all. I mean, it was like a it was like an annoying cold too, but for some reason I didn't sound bad. I just um I just couldn't smell or taste either. Mm. So weird. And did you get that yeah. back? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Were you, are you vaccinated? Do you mind if I ask? I was vaccinated. Yes. Yeah. And I got it through then. So, and my husband too. He's wow. the one, he got it through his vaccine and then gave it to me through mine. Mm. Which is lovely. It's so nice when they <laughs> share. Isn't it so nice when it's they so share? Nice. He gave me this too, actually, which is. <laughs> <laughs> you need to stop making out. I, think I mean, I know he, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> <laughs> right? Just stop yeah. making out. That's, that's, that's a problem. Well, so I'm did you get my emails that I can only say for an hour? I'm so sorry. I totally messed up. Did you guys not get my emails? I got your email. Yeah, I, I didn't, um, but that's because I've been so busy. I haven't read my emails. I had um, a total senior moment and I had like, a, I think it's cause I'm, my head is stuffed up and I could have remembered it earlier, but I had it down as 9am my time, which is so dumb. Like I know it wasn't, but I just didn't register with me. And so I actually came here early, was all set up and I was in the room and I'm like, well, they're never usually late. And then I'm like, it's six in the morning for them. So I'm so sorry, but I have to have one hour. That's okay. Um, I did the exact thing, same thing on Monday where I was, uh, I was zooming with my best friend from middle school who lives in Georgia. And we said four o'clock and at one o'clock she texted me and goes, are we still on for four? And I went, oh shit. (laughs) 
It was four <laughs> o'clock Georgia time. Oh man. So I was like, give me half an hour. I was at Gelson's and in my workout clothes, sweat. And I was like, give me half an hour. I'll be there. Ran home, threw everything up and uh, we did it. But I wasn't prepared. I was super bummed because I had found these pictures of the two of us from middle school that I completely, I was in such a rush. I forgot them. And then I remembered them at at the end of the podcast and I I couldn't remember where they were. And I was like, shit, if it had been four o'clock my time, I would have had time to find them and be prepared, but whatever. Well, then let's just get right to it. Okay. So all right. We wanted to talk about attachment theory, right? So a, a listener yes. asked if we would talk about that. I have never heard of this. So You haven't? No. So oh, fill good. me in. So this fill will be good. Me, yes, fill me in. I want to okay. know. Okay. So the like the overarching idea and this was a, a man named John Bowlby and he discovered that the way children attach to their most important caregivers. So it's usually the mom, but you know, parents, the way they form those early attachment bonds, like wires them basically sets the tone for how they're going to attach in future relationships. So I think it's something like 60, I have it somewhere like 65 or 69% of people have secure attachment. So the vast majority of people have secure attachment, which which means that their primary caregiver, it really only takes one, but primary caregiver was was good enough. You know how we talk about the good enough mother? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to be perfect, but good enough so that the child believes that most of the time their needs will be met or mm-hmm. that they will try to be met. And so, so then like if you can picture how you remember with your kids, a securely attached child, like it's it's like there if you're in a room for example like an un, a place they've never been before will hang out with mom at first like get their bearings and then venture out and explore and then come back and check in mom's still there okay we're safe and then venture out more and explore and then pretty soon and so they trust that like their world is safe and so they can go and be independent and explore knowing that there's a safe person to come home to makes mm-hmm. sense right yep makes perfect sense so, um, so then there are these three other attachment styles. And so one of them, I have a piece of paper just to make sure that I don't say it wrong. So one of them is ambivalent. So if your if the mother, again, it could be the father, it could be whoever, but if the primary caregiver is inconsistent, like sometimes they meet the needs and then sometimes they don't, they're like a little neglected. The child can't rely. They learn that they can't rely on their needs being met. Like maybe they will, but they can't rely on it. So they get insecure and they get anxious and they sometimes get angry. And so you can imagine what happens then when you grow up and have a significant other relationship and you don't, you can't rely on your needs getting met, you know, how you are. In mm-hmm. that relationship, it to- it makes sense. It totally translates, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Okay, so then the um an- the third kind is avoidant. So that is when the mother is just distant or disengaged, and it happens a lot of times when you have the primary caregiver has some kind of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so they like if they're depressed, you know, they just don't have the capacity to really be there, or you know, even just you can imagine other stressors that just cause the primary caregiver to just like kind of be there, but distant and disengaged and not able to meet the child's needs. So the child becomes like emotionally distant and not very explorative. Like they're not very likely to go out in the world because it's just, it's just kind of scary. And they internalize that, you know, my needs probably won't be met. And so that's how they go into their adult lives and their expectations from whoever they're going to be in relationship with is like, I'm probably on my own here. You're probably not going to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth kind is disorganized. And so that is if the mother is like, has kind of extreme emotions, like it's like scary, like that the mom is like really, you know, not like you just never know what you're going to get, mm-hmm. um, you know, either angry or just like totally passive or like if the mom's really afraid, just yeah, it basically makes the child like unsure, insecure, passive, non-responsive, sometimes even um, depressed. You know, it's 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 not good. 
um, as you can imagine. And so then the child ends up just being really confused with like no strategy to try to go out in the world and get their needs met. So those are like the four main types. Um, and again, like the, the main point is that I would say is kids need a reliable attachment figure. And, you know, that can be, you know, reparented, you know, you, you could have a, a fantastic adult who comes in and is reliable and kind of fixes those things that maybe the parents didn't, you know, I mean, these are not, you're not doomed, you know, you can do the work on this kind of stuff, but it like what happens when people get into adult relationships is they, they end up, I've probably talked about this before, that kind of idea of interlocking pathology, mm-hmm. basically where you engage with a partner, but from your not best parts, from your insecurities. So you can imagine like someone who is not used to getting their needs met may actually end up with someone who's not going to meet their needs or not communicative. And so it's this like, you know, it's an opportunity to heal, but it's also very frustrating because people are, you know, reacting from these attachment issues that may be totally unknown to them. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that was a lot. What questions so do you I have? Wanna jump, well, I want to jump in on this and say, like this one, uh, you and I have talked about it a lot, Kristen, but um, it like every time it comes up for me, I almost start crying because of my own childhood and because of like just the times in my own parenting where I'm like, oh man, I didn't handle that well. And so I like want to jump in also and say, it's not just reparenting somebody else comes in. But like I had a definite shift in my parenting at a certain point. Now, I think my kids were attached to me anyway, but yeah. I definitely, there was like healing that happened in my relationship with my kids. So I wanted to like jump in and say that too. Cause I think sometimes well, yeah. people hear this and they're like, oh man, I've been chaotic. Like that's where I went to. I was like, oh, there have been times, there were times in my life where like big stuff was going on and I feel like I was chaotic. Yeah, but chaotic is different. Like, it's, it's like your kid just needs to know that most of the time yeah. you're going to do, you're doing your best and you care. Like you can be messing up and missing, but then you're coming back and realizing that, you know, it's, it's again, it's that good enough. You don't have to be great. You get a lot of leeway. The bar is not that high. <laughs> it's just that your kid has to know that you really like you, you know, that they have their own needs. You're not so in your own world that you're not even aware, you know, that they have their own needs, you know, you're just, you're doing your best. Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts, um, as I usually do, but one is I was like, I am all for as a parent. <laughs> I, I am definitely all for. So I, I disagree with you. I, I mean, I, 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 I may be the, the good one most of the time, but I definitely have shades of the other three. Um, for sure, from time to time at different periods when they're children. And then my other thought was, so much of your experience of being parented is your perception, right? So I have two kids who have two different sets of needs, who are wired differently from each other, who perceive me differently. Here's an example. Bert used to say, that Isla would tell her that I yell constantly. And George would say, I don't really hear mom yelling. So they both live in the same house with the same parent, with the same behavior. So, but one hears me yelling and the other hears me as just talking to her. Do you, does that make sense? I mean, it totally makes sense. And I just want to interject one thing because this was all done in the early years. Like I think maybe before you know, ages two or three, I could be wrong uh, about that, but we're talking early. So right, right, right. this is when your children are a hundred percent dependent on you. Like right, they'll okay. die if you're not attending to their needs. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about, so that's why I'm saying you were good enough. Like your children were yeah. never in yeah, danger yeah, yeah. of their real needs not being met. So you're talking about stuff that gets up into where, you know, that, that is subjective a hundred percent, but your Got children it. are securely attached. They may be mad at you or they may be anxious sometimes or whatever, but your children know that when you had them and you were responsible for keeping them alive, you were meeting most of their needs. They weren't yeah, neglected. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is very true. And yeah. the fact that your daughter can say to you, you yell a lot, 
means she's yeah. pretty attached to you. She's not that. No, no, no. Yeah. She did. She didn't. Oh, say she it told to Bert. Me. She told she Bert. She said it to Bert because she was scared to tell me that mm-hmm. I yell a lot. But I'm like, I, I don't even remember ever yelling. I think. Okay, but to her, she hears yelling. She also has sensory processing stuff. So Mm -hmm. things are very intense for her where, you know, I'm a loud talker, period. I'm just a loud talker. So if I get passionate and loud to her, I think it sounds very much like I'm yelling. But to me, I go, I'm just going, can you believe that we had this podcast? Oh, my God. And then if it's negative, can you believe this guy rear-ended me? I'm so mad. They're both the same exact tone of voice, but she would hear the, that as yelling. And, and oh, Georgia goes, oh, mom's not yelling. She's just, that's just how mom talks. So I find that very fascinating because I think about as they grow up and as they, of course, get into therapy because of all the ways that we've screwed them up because we do, um, mm-hmm. that my kid's going to be like, mom, my mom just yelled all the time. And I was completely unaware that that's how she was living in this world. Do you know that concerns me too? I know this has nothing to do with attachment theory, but I do think about that a lot. So I think about my, my in-laws and how all three of them have anxiety and how that anxiety looks different on each of them. Mm -hmm. And And what their perception of their parents were and their perceptions of their parents are completely different from each other. There, there's some things that line up and there's some things that are totally different. And I think these three people grew up in this. I don't have siblings, so I don't have anybody to go, Hey, did you think mom was crazy also? Or was that just Mm -hmm. me? You know, I don't have Mm -hmm. that resource, but I look at those three adults and how they function in the world. And And I listen to them talk about their parents and they have different experiences from the same setup. I can't imagine they would parent so differently from one child to the other. Do you, you know what I mean? Like I can't. No, I I, totally think that makes sense. I mean, I think kids do. I mean, there's all this theory just about siblings, you know, the importance of siblings and sibling position mm -hmm. because that, you know, we are, we experience as we experience ourselves as children in relation to others. We learn who we are by the relationships we're in. So our sibling relationships are really important also and shape us in very negative and positive ways. Mm-hmm. And also then shape the way, you know, the way you see your parents too, because, you know, someone always thinks that they're, that kid's the favorite or mm-hmm. that kid is, you know, last on the list or whatever. So it all, I mean, all that stuff does impact kids and how they are in relationships. Mm-hmm. And the thing that, you know, just, just the fact that you're you have enough self-awareness to be curious about how your kids perceive you differently and that you and Bert can have that conversation that she thinks you're yelling. I mean, that again, that's good enough. Right. The, the kids that I see in my practice, some of the time, the ones who are really, really, I would say have insecure attachment are, I mean, their parents, they weren't good enough. And, and more, more of the time than not, these kids, and I can picture them as little kids, were like, help me. And their kid, their parents were just missing. They mm-hmm. just were either not able to try. They were too busy with some other crisis that was going on. They had their own mental health issues. You know, it doesn't mean they're bad people. They weren't, but they just missed. And you have these kids who are just like in a world where it, but the truth of their experience was their needs were not a priority on anyone's list. And so they had to figure out how to go forward really on their own. So if you are, if, the, if this attachment theory, um, it doesn't apply, I guess maybe it, what you were talking about is when they're young, like two or younger, what, what is it? I know you were saying that it affects how you're in a relationship as an adult. Let's talk about teenagers. What does it look yeah. like as a teenager? Like, because teenagers are so freaking complicated as it is. Yeah. And what does that look like as a teenager? You know? Well, it looks like getting into what's, what a lot of times it is anxiety, right? So what's, what's under that anxiety? And when kids have the opportunity, I mean, to come to therapy, and we've talked about how not everyone can even do that. You know, parents could do this in their own homes, really, if they wanted to have these conversations, but it's hard. But when kids have the opportunity to really explore what's under their anxiety, they often find that, you know, they 
they don't know how to even really identify their needs or how to create strategies to get their own needs met. And, mm. and that there are, you can teach that, you know, you can address that and you can then work on the relationships that with the parents and other relationships that those kids are in, you know, you can teach them to how to identify their needs and advocate for their needs and how to also differentiate between something that's an external stressor in the present moment that's creating anxiety and this part of them that has felt anxious because their needs weren't met for as long as they can remember Mm -hmm. and figure out how they can, what are they going to do about both of those things to take care of themselves? So, you know, there are lots of things you can do again, like as parents, if it's not, if it's not really bad, just shining a light on it and being curious and inviting your kids to have conversations and being willing to even hear feedback about, you know, how have I not been there for you? Like when you've tried to tell me something and you, and you think I just didn't get it or when you needed something for me and I just really wasn't there for you. Um, you know, it's always conversation. That so I want to jump in here too and say that we have a um, workshop coming up on this, on healing the broken parent-teen relationship. So um, anybody who's listening or interested in that, you should get on our mailing list. Quick pitch on that. And how do, how do you get on your mailing list, Jocelyn? <laughs> you go to resiliencebasedparenting.com and you'll also get a really great free lesson. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> You're welcome. That, that's good. I didn't know you had a workshop about healing. What's it called? Healing broken relationship? Healing the broken parent-teen relationship. Mm. I think that's, that's the title, right, Kristen? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really great. I want to come to the workshop just to learn. I don't think well, I have a broken teen relationship, um, but I think I'm doing pretty good with my teens so far. Knock on wood. But um, I'm writing this down. Healing broken. I'll figure it out. Um, but that's awesome. So, well, so- I kept I kept hearing from people that you know there is sometimes there really is a distance in the teenage years where people feel like. I mean, what do I do? My kid, like we used to have a good relationship, but now I don't even know them. Like they really, you know, they're just, it feels like maybe it's, you know, actually strained and there's a lot of hostility kind of going on and tension, but maybe they've just drifted apart and you used to be close, but you feel like they're not really talking to you anymore. And it's, you know, it, it hurts. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I hear that a lot from parents, like what, are, and they, and they have good enough relationships, but it feels they want more. They want to be included in their teens lives and they feel like they aren't. So we're going to address all of that. That's a hard spot. I, my bird is in that spot right now with Georgia in particular. Um, Georgia 17, she can drive. She loves her autonomy. I foster her autonomy. Her dad would like for all of us to have no autonomy and be completely (laughs) enmeshed. And like, I think if we could like sew our hands together so we could never leave each other. He'd be super <laughs> excited. But I mean, that's not the nature of the teen. I, and I'm constantly yeah. reminding him, when were you ever home on a Saturday night when you were 17? As soon as you got your car, did you hang out with your parents all the time? No way. You know, she's getting good grades. She's excelling on the golf team. She's on the, the school newspaper. She's the social chair for the senior class. She's She's doing exactly what we want her to be doing. You're not supposed to be her focus. And he's breaking his heart. It breaks his heart that she doesn't want to just watch movies with him all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I might be a little concerned if all she wanted to do is watch movies with her dad at 17. I'd be a little concerned. Like and it from- doesn't sound like she's angry at him. She's not withdrawing because she's angry. She's no, becoming no. independent. Exactly. I may send him to this. <laughs> so I mean, I do have to say, this is so much better, though, than the relationship where, like, the parent is just angry. Uh-huh. So it's like so sweet that he feels that way. I would love to have a dad who's like, can we please hang out? Yeah, well, he is angry. He is angry also. He is, he's a big complicated ball right, right now. He's hurt. He yeah. gets his feelings hurt when she doesn't want to hang out with him. As teenagers will be, sometimes she's snippy with him. Yeah. And it's like she stabbed him. It's like she's just 
mortally injured him. He can't disconnect and and realize this is you were probably eight times worse, 10 times worse than her as in the snippy attitude, because he gives snippy attitude all the time anyway. So he has no ability to to relate to her in in that. You know what I also noticed? And this is a generalization, so it obviously is not true for everyone. But I have noticed that men who they weren't they weren't daughters. Right. And so there's something about like the dad daughter thing. It's like we we were that teenager, that teenage girl. And there's something about teenage girls where there's like there's a lot in their heads. And again, these are generalizations. But I've just I have noticed that like there's a dad daughter thing where like it was the sweet relationship and dads don't really quite get the te- the 17 year old mind. And so they just get like, ah, where'd my little sweet baby go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening here. Isla hasn't gone into that phase yet. I think Isla is so empathic. She, she's so aware that Bert's hurt that she just won't let herself be like that with him yet. Um, but Georgia is so independent. She's just like, I'm going to be my own person. And that's just the way it's going to work. Um, but, um, yeah, this teen workshop's pretty good because I, I hear from a lot of people. Another one of our friends has a daughter who's 15. And all we hear from their family is how much they argue. And it's all a power mm-hmm. struggle. It's just mm-hmm. it's just stupid power struggle shit where you go, why are you engaging in this right. warfare with a 15-year-old? You're the adult. Yeah. Push pause, take a walk, come back and go, here's the way it's going to be. But you also have to allow, I think when kids get to be teenagers, it's like this when they're toddlers too. You have to figure out what you can give them yeah, that they can just totally screw up, you know? And there's so many hills that parents are dying on where I'm mm-hmm. like, why would, you, why would you pick that hill to die on? Mm-hmm. There's there's big stuff going on, but then most of the stuff that I see just doesn't need to be an argument. It needs to either be a boundary or like who cares. Yeah, but I'm probably I'm probably more on the permissive side than than two of the two of you are. I could probably stand to scooch a little more to the center there. <laughs> well, but the other thing is, is like it's it's also just so much more helpful if you start earlier giving some control and letting them learn to connect the dots and see that they don't always make the right decisions and have those failures before there's so much at stake, like your future and college and your career and all that, because then parents really, they want to die on those hills because they can see that it really matters, but they, they, they are, they've been, you know, too controlling for too long. And so their kids don't have any they don't even, they're not buying in. They're just resisting. Yes. I think that is very true. I think you have to figure out the balance of when to let them go. Georgia explained, uh, described a parent to me yesterday so perfectly. I thought, and I asked her if I was this parent and she said, no, I was super relieved. But she said, I was like, tell me about so-and-so's mom. What is she like? And she goes, she's the mom that is still emailing the teacher And her daughter's a senior in high school. And I went, wow, that's pretty descriptive. And that encompasses everything that goes on. And then you go, that's, how does that help the the young lady? How does that help her move forward into life? How, how does it affect her negatively? You know, if you're still, I was like, am I that way? And Georgia went, no. I was like, good, because I only email the teacher if something (laughs) really big is going on. Uh, Other than that, I feel like it's her world and I'm imposing myself into her world. And I would never want to do that. Uh, Our world should coexist. I think when they get to be a certain age, our world should overlap a little bit, but they overlap less and less as they get older because isn't that what you want them to be? Well, and you, you want to move into the role of support, Mm -hmm. but that means that they're driving the agenda and hopefully you're aligned with their agenda so that you can support. And so they're asking for your support and appreciating your support instead of, you know, being expecting you to work harder than they are and then resisting control. Did I ever tell you about the, um, my friend who works at a bank on wall street and this was not even an intern. This was a, a first year actual employee at a bank in New York. And 
the mom called my friend who was the boss, the mom of the 23 year old kid and said, you're working my son too hard. He was like, maybe this is not the place for him. But like, whose mommy calls when you have a boss and a job? That's crazy. Wow. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's called too attached attachment that theory. Is, <laughs> that is definitely. For sure. yeah. I was just so I was just thinking about this and it's a little bit off topic topic but also related, which is that I think very often in our culture we have we for sure have those parents, right? But we also have the parents who are like I'm going to raise independent kids. My kids, I'm not going to do anything for my kids, even my toddlers that they can do for themselves. And it becomes like almost combative and not like a supportive family where you're helping each other. Have you noticed that sometimes in families where it's like the kids ask for help and the parents are like, no, you can do that yourself. Why would I do that for you? I haven't noticed that, but I know what you're talking about. Because I know you and I've talked about it before too, but I can't actually think of people really. Like it sounds like you have people you can point to. I do. I do. I mean, so many people like that in my life where I'm like, why would you, and in it, I mean, it starts in my family. I don't think anybody in my family is going to watch this. So (laughs) 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 I can say that where like, it took me a long time. It took me until my ex-husband, my ex-husband brought it to my attention that like the people in my family are supposed to be helping me. And still to this day, there are moments where I have to remind myself, oh yeah, the people in my family are supposed to be helping me. It's, it's weird when they're not. But I think there's a lot of it out there. There's the whole um, theory. I think it's called Rye. Do you guys know about Rye? Yeah, where you're just supposed to let your kids be. Yes. Basically, don't let them eat dirt. Don't touch them. Don't put them in high chairs. Don't put like anything that wouldn't happen in the wild. You don't do, right? Don't push them on swings because they're Don't teach please and thank you. Yeah. Well, it's what I experienced with it was more you don't help them with things that they should learn how to do on their own. So you would never push them in a swing because you want them to learn to pump their legs. And certainly I believe in some of that. I believe like kids can do a lot more often than what we're requiring of them. But the idea that you wouldn't ever go to the park and push your kid in a swing broke my heart. Like I was like, I, I want to do that. That seems like so much fun. That's crazy. and I remember like the, the eating dirt thing was part of it. It's like, if it's not actually going to hurt them, let them do it. I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm all for germs. I think kids are supposed to get dirty, but like if your kid's sitting there eating dirt, do you, like, do they really need to learn that lesson? Well, totally on their own or speaking or from a mom who had a child who ate dirt regularly, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to stop them from eating dirt. My daughter used really? to lay, yeah, I, Isla used to lay face down. And just stick her tongue uh, on the dirt. Uh, yeah, the I dirt. had a kid and who I, ate dirt too. I'd be like, don't do that. Don't do that. That's and then so she'd funny. go, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, forget it. Apparently, I ate dirt also. And I have to say, I just did my food sensitivity test and I am sensitive to basically nothing. So I am attributing that to the fact that I ate a pound of dirt as a child because we're all supposed to eat a pound of dirt before we die. So, no, I can't believe they would teach you not that you're not supposed to teach please and thank you. That's insane. Why? You don't think it is a whole thing. It's a whole theory. But why? That's so stupid. So I have thoughts on that one. I think you teach please and thank you by modeling. But I have to tell you that I did find the parents who were constantly correcting their kids. Say, please have good manners. Those parents became rude. It was like, I I'm having a hard time being in a room with you because you're constantly nagging your child. Like I remember a mommy and me where there were like seven parents who were constantly screaming across the room. Say, please remember to say please. And I'm like, God, could you like do that correction quietly or politely? Could you do it politely? Yeah. That that was my experience with that. That's pretty funny. Yeah. But yes, you should for sure be modeling, please. And thank you. Oh, well, good manners in general. Right. Right. So do you model for the kids that you don't help how to do things and that's how they're supposed to learn? I mean, I find it so weird because, because I had that in my upbringing. So now in retrospect, I'm like, I didn't realize for so long that I was supposed to be able to turn to people in my family and go, Hey, I need help with this. 
And so that one struck out at me where I understand the philosophy of like gaining independence and, and kids can, they absolutely can do a lot more than what our society generally allows for them to do. Mm-hmm. But it struck me and I'm probably, by the way, they're a very tight society. They get really upset when people mischaracterize what they do. I, might I was just going to say, we, I probably am too, because I only know enough about them to be dangerous. So I got probably, yelled at. Yeah, yeah, I got yelled at by some of them at some point, but, um, but I mean, I took some of the classes and I was like, I'm just not going to do this because I want to engage with my kids and I want them to see me as somebody who will go out there and help them. And by the way, both of my children know how to swing. <laughs> and both of my children are capable of like, you know, they do have self-efficacy and they are independent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's different. Yeah. You know, it's just a different philosophy. There's so many different ways to skin the cat of parenting yeah. and, and have healthy children. And you can have someone else who uses the same methods and totally screws it up. It's just, you know. And frankly, I think anyone who is actually going to the trouble to learn a method mm-hmm. is probably, that's great, right? Because uh, yeah. they're, they care enough to learn something and be thoughtful and about it. So for yes, sure. And yeah. I should say, I have lots of friends who used it and their kids are securely attached. Right. I just personally was a little bit not good with it just because I had family members who weren't helpful. And I was like, no, I want to be helpful. Want my kids to see me as a helpful person. Well, the flip side of that too is that, you know, care care means different things to different people. Feeling cared for. It's like the languages of love, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of my kids needs to snuggle. The other one needs me to make her a snack. And the end result is they both feel basically hugged. You know, but mm-hmm. I would rather not. I love will snuggle only on her terms, whereas Georgia will just curl up still to this day when she needs us a, a hug or a snuggle. She'll just come get it. Isla's they're just different. They have different they have different ways of receiving care. And I tried to give care in the way that I thought they needed it, but also in the way that I thought they was undeniable. You know, it is undeniable that I am caring for you so that you feel cared for. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the thing that I love the fact that you're bringing up the hug, because I always, I see adults in my practice who you just know, and I ask that they didn't get, they didn't get held. Like one of the things we're supposed to do to be a good enough mother and to give our kids secure attachment is in those early years when they're nervous systems cannot calm themselves down. It is our job to pick them up and hold them. Mm-hmm. And they sort of osmose, you know, the calmness from our system into theirs. And then they learn to self-soothe. But it takes us, you know, kids who don't get that, mm-hmm. they they don't, they a lot of times don't know how to soothe themselves. And so their, you know, fight or flight is triggered often. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's another one of those things about secure attachment. It is, it's just that there is something about physical touch, mm-hmm. you know, physically meeting those needs when your kids are actually emotionally triggered and can't calm themselves down. So what other activities like hugging and physical touch promotes the positive attachment? Well, what's coming to mind for me, which is not actually answering your answering your question, but there is such a great book. Have you read what happened to what happened to you? No. So it just came out in the last couple months, month even, um, and it's Oprah and this um, amazing oh, psychiatrist. Oh, I have this book. Oh, I bought yeah, this book, but I don't, so I read good. It. Is it? It's written for lay people and basically in a com- in a bunch of conversations between them. But it's uh, it's so well written, and it's just about trauma and, and neglect and how, you know, when, when kids either experience trauma or neglect or just, you know, don't get their needs met, you know, what that does. And, and he kind of, he really explains well, the, the physiology of the fight or flight response and just, and how, when kids are dysregulated and how to regulate them. And it's just so well done. And the title of the book, what they're trying to say with that is that in psychology and in the criminal justice system, in schools, pretty much everywhere where you're dealing with people, instead of asking what's wrong with you, if we only asked what happened to you, we would find out that these early childhood traumas really 
are, what the problem are, and they, they can be healed if we're focusing on the right thing. But mm. oftentimes we're not focusing on the right thing because we're mm. missing next. We don't ask that question. That's interesting. It's oh, so good. I'm ordering this book right now. It is so good. I'm telling you, even, even if it's like not about extreme trauma, mm. just again, like when your parents just miss, when your parents just don't meet your needs enough, it just makes you realize it just, it's just, it just does such a great job of kind of spelling out how that impacts, you know, who you become and how anxious you are and how likely you are to ever advocate for getting your needs met. And can you self-soothe and all those things? That's, that's great. I bought this book actually right before we moved. So of course I had plenty of time to read yeah. it right before we were moving. Yeah. It was so stupid. <laughs> but I remember when, once you started saying Oprah and it's like, I was like, I have this book and I, someone recommended it to me highly. So I'll get to it at some point, but back to yeah. the attachment theory. So physical touch, physical soothing when a child is. Oh, like- so that's, that's what I was going to say. I'm glad. Thank you for bringing that back. So one of the things that he talks about, um, this psychiatrist in terms of, you know, healing trauma is, um, in, in, is rhythm. So in indigenous, well, before we talk about indigenous cultures, like, you know, when a baby, like in infants, you know, you rock. There's mm-hmm. something about rocking that is that regulates the nervous system. And in indigenous cultures, they do things like dance, mm-hmm. right? Like you always, you know, they, they dance or drumming. And there's a reason that it actually literally regulates our, our nervous system. And so, which I had never known before. And I think that's just so fantastic. Even like walking or running, they are literally helping us get regulated when we're dysregulated, which I thought was just such a cool thing to learn. Well, that's definitely true for my husband. As soon as his anxiety starts peaking, I go, you need to go get on the treadmill. Yeah. Go get on the treadmill. And as soon as he gets in that rhythmic motion, I didn't think yep. about it being rhythm. I thought yep. about it being physical activity, getting your heart rate up, sweating, flooding serotonin. But the rhythm makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. you're right. Georgia was very hard to get to sleep. And I would have to. Yep. This for ever and she weighed five thousand pounds and i thought i was dying but this is the only way i could get her to go to sleep because all these like let them cry it out theories did not work for that child no i could not it did not work wasn't working so i would have my sister-in-law come over and we would just take turns walking around the apartment and i give her to walk around the apartment i remember walking sometimes and going like I think I need to just start crying because my arms are hurting so bad. I can't (laughs) shake her anymore. But she'd finally go to sleep and then stay asleep all night. But the getting to sleep for for Georgia, I rocked her until she was probably four. She just couldn't go to sleep without that kind of activity. Um, Mm -hmm. So rhythm. I think it's important to address to the the. You know, you said something, Leanne, earlier about kids being different. And I see that so much with the crying it out with sleeping, where for some parents, they're like, dude, I did this for a week and it was magic. Mm -hmm. But then I had a kid that like that was never going to work. And it would have been a two year long battle that would have put trauma on that child. Yes. So like, I'm, I mean, my kids are past the, well past the infancy stage, but I have friends with kids who are infants who are really struggling. They're like, Oh, you know, it's like not working. It's not working, man. At a certain point, like, and Kristen, you should jump in and tell me if you disagree with this, but it's like at a certain point, you're not meeting your kids needs. At a certain point, it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. Uh, yeah. I had that with Georgia. I We let her, we did that sleep training method where you go in and you soothe and then you go back out and you go back in and you soothe and you go back out for certain stages of time. Yeah. And she just became more and more hysterical. Yeah. And yeah. after so many days of it, I went, I, I had that exact instinct. I thought I'm breaking her. I'm actually breaking her. You're, so, you're imposing at a certain point. And this is not, I really don't think this is true of all kids. I think it is no. working wonders for lots of families who are like, oh my God, that saved my life because mm-hmm. they weren't getting any sleep. But there are certain children and I agree because I have one where I was like, this is, this is going to ruin her. This is going to end up being something where she's like, I scream and my family doesn't come. 
Yes, exactly. I felt that way too. Now, Isla, I could swaddle her, lay her down, never hear from her again. But Georgia was, yep, that's, it was bizarre, the difference. But then you have to go, that's a, that's a, that's a, a a clue of how differently they're wired, right? And how they soothe how they cope, how they process the world, even those tiny little nuggets in the beginning of, I mean, Isla (laughs) could not tolerate being strapped into a high chair. She all but gave me the middle finger every time I put her in a high chair. (laughs) So So, did Junie, yeah. And my point was like, well, what's my point here that she stays strapped into a chair? Obviously, I need her to sit in a high chair when we go to dinner or something, but not three times a day. She would she would push and arch her back and scream and would not eat. The minute I took her out of the high chair, she would eat. So I was like, guess what? This kid is going to be eating in motion. I will hand her a piece of salmon and she will shove it in her mouth as she's walking back to play because she cannot sit there. Georgia would have sat in a high chair all day long and fed herself and been the happiest kid ever. She was just super easy. So you can't, I just, what am I going to do? Force Isla, literally force break her so that she's staying in this high chair. Now, when we went out to dinner, she had a hard time in the high chair, but we kept trying and we kept saying, well, this is how it's going to be. Okay. Sit in my lap and eat dinner. And you eventually know? they get old enough. It, they do ex- eventually they get old I enough. Think, yeah, it doesn't last forever. I think that's what people miss. Some people miss is that. If you, if you go down to the value system, right, the value system is what you're trying to teach. You need to, you need to eat a healthy meal. Do I care if you eat it strapped into a chair or while you're walking to build blocks? Am I really going to die on that hill? Or do yeah. I want my kid to eat a healthy meal, right? And now, obviously, at a certain age, she sits at the table and eats a healthy, she's not a wild animal. She's not running around <laughs> still shoving food in her mouth while she, you know, does her homework. We eat dinner at the table at a certain age. She developed into going, oh, our family eats dinner at the table. And we have a conversation about, you know, what I drew today in preschool. Um, but I just, it's so hard to, I think as a parent, you feel very judged if you have a kid who doesn't sit in their high chair while they're eating, mm-hmm. you know? And then all these other parents are like, you let her run around like that. And I'm like, you try getting her to stay in that high chair. Good luck. You know, I just want to bring up for me though, is just, you know, there are a lot of kids who having to sit in a classroom or, you know, know. at circle time or behind those desks. And especially if they're, you know, dysregulated or they had some trauma, it's just not, they're not trying to be bad. It's just not the right thing for them to be doing. And they're, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't have that many options, but I think that it's, that's a tough thing that we do is force kids starting at age five to sit still for all those hours. And then they have like the whole, whole body listening, which some kids, which I understand why the teachers want whole body listening and some kids can do it, but some like my son cannot whole body listen to save his life. And what in does fact, that mean? Whole body I've never listening. heard that before. Oh, really? No. It's so it's like where you, you're supposed to be looking at the teacher and your body is silent and you're like, your whole body is paying attention to the teacher. And so <laughs> it's funny because my son, well, here's what cracks me up about it. If you make my son whole body, listen, he starts daydreaming. He's like, that should be the time. I'm not fucking listening at all. But if you let him like, like, you know, spin around and look at other stuff, he'll actually listen. And it is super annoying because it comes across as really disrespectful, right? But I'm like, yeah, if you make him whole body listen, he is going to go into his mind and reenact like playing Minecraft. That is what is going to happen. Uh, I've never heard this term and I can tell you for sure, I can't do that. No. I can't can't whole body listen. There's no way. I'm right now, as we're talking, playing with my sock. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, just playing with my sock because I I can't hold. I I've never heard that term before. Isla was the same. Georgia would sit, and I'd read a book, and we'd talk about the book, and it was the nicest, most amazing little moment. Isla, I don't think she ever listened to a book seated until she was probably four. I would read the book still, but she'd be circling the room, climbing mm-hmm. something, throwing something. 
turning flips. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep reading the book, even if she doesn't sit here, because she needs to learn language. She needs she needs what's coming in the book, even if she's not sitting here with the words. And, you know, little did I know she was dyslexic. So she probably could. The words were probably all over the place anyway for her. <laughs> but I, I just kept going, well, this kid's just not going to sit and listen to a book. What am I going to do? Force her to sit and wa- listen to a book? No, I'm going to read the book and let her spin around the room. Um, there's, there's not a lot of leeway for that kind of stuff in society where, there's not, and again, I get it because if you have a classroom full of 20 kids totally. and one little kid is rolling around on the floor, it's distracting a whole bunch of the other kids. Like I totally get it. I have a lot of sympathy yeah. for so much sympathy for teachers. I would never want that job. Me neither. However, no. I just am like, that is not going to work for this one of mine. My daughter all day long, will whole body listen to you, but not myself. <laughs> Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> okay. I know we only have like 10 more minutes. So I want to, yeah. I want to finish talking about attachment theory in that we have the physical touch uh, consistency. I would imagine would be one of the pieces of, of the positive. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. And consistency meaning. It's really just that, you know, again, your kid, I mean, the younger they are, the more it's just like a cry. And then, you know, they start to form words. And so just that you're, whatever they need, whatever's going on, that you're attending to them. And, and then that you're like, it's like, you could be what changing their diaper, but not present Mm -hmm. that if you're always like that, that's not, that will create an insecure attachment, you know, Mm. because so that's what happens a lot of times with like when someone has a mental illness or is really depressed and they just, they're not present. And the kid is like, you know, the thing about mirroring, you know, that kids, we mirror them, the moms do. And, and like, and it goes back and forth. So they, they literally learn who they are by us. And so they smile and we smile back and they laugh and we laugh. And so they, they attune to us. We are attuned to their emotions. Mm-hmm. And so you can be holding them or feeding them, but not attuned to their emotions. Mm-hmm. And that will create a problem. I so, see. but it's, it's that, you know, it's like, I see you, mm-hmm. you know, how, didn't you, didn't you used to think when your kids were little, they literally would cease to exist if you didn't look. Cause they're like, mommy, look, mommy, look, mommy, look. It's like, until you actually look, they can't move forward. They're like, <laughs> yeah. they don't exist, you know? And then you uh-huh. look enough times and then they're like, ah, I am, I exist. I am valuable. I'm I here. Her. Right. I yeah. got her. Well, I want to clarify one thing you said. It's not about giving them what they want. Necessarily. No, 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 no. It's no. about, no. it's about being present and listening and uh, reacting appropriately. Right. To say, you know, if the kid wants his fourth lollipop, you don't give it to them, but you attend to their need in saying, that's not good for you. And I can't let you do that. And we're not having a fourth lollipop. And no, we're not going to do that. That kind of consistency. And also, I think consistency in um, in boundaries is very important, because if you have a boundary one day that is no longer there the next day, the kid then doesn't trust you or doesn't understand what they're supposed to be doing. I love that you brought that up because I also think that having words that, that matter, making Mm -hmm. your words mean something to kids is an important part of that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you see parents who are like, you do that one more time, we're leaving. And then you don't leave. And I mean, every parent has done that here and there for sure. But I think that there are some times when it becomes a pathology Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, you're getting out of attachment with that, but it, I mean, I see why it's related because if you have a secure attachment with your child, right? If your child is securely attached to you, then you have all the leeway in the world to have whatever boundaries you want and your kid will still feel loved. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, they know that you love them. So you cannot give them the fourth or the third or the second or the first lollipop. Mm-hmm. but they know that you love them. Mm-hmm. That, but you know, then when you get it, if you have a, a, a kid who has an insecure attachment, then there's like what it, you like all that other stuff, if it's inconsistent oh. or it's, you know, diffuse boundaries or mesh boundaries or whatever, it's like, it's just confusing. And then the lollipop means something different than the lollipop. Mm-hmm. The lollipop mm-hmm. means something much larger. 
mm-hmm. when they don't get that fourth lollipop if the attachment is not secure. I see. That's really fascinating because yeah. you do see that. with. It's interesting to watch kids process a no. You know, mm-hmm. how a kid processes a no, I think, is a big window into maybe they're, they're you know, no kid wants to hear no. It's not like no. And they're like, okay, mom said no. But it's interesting to see how kids process their no from their parent and what that power looks like. This is not attachment theory either, I'm sure. But but I always am fascinated to watch the no. Well, I think that's interesting. I don't know why, why it reminded me of this. I was just looking at the clock, but just the last second. Like one of the things that he noticed originally when he was, um, you know, defining these attachment styles is that a securely attached kid, you know, when their mom comes in the room, they're super happy to see them, you know, they miss them. But some of these other kids, like, would actually, when their mom would come in, would, like, not go there, right? Mm -hmm. Or they would be just as excited for any random stranger Hmm. as in their mom. And so you can see how as you grow older, and you're not differentiating really between who is someone who like it makes sense to feel really secure with, or who is someone who, you know what I mean? You can just see how yeah, like it just messes kids up. Cause they're, they're just like, they're, they're not, they're not trying to attach in ways that really make sense with new people in their lives as they get older. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I know you have to go. We have to wrap up. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. But it's never long enough talking to you guys. It's never long enough. I think we could have a five hour podcast and I would still have stuff to talk about. <laughs> I know. I know. I so, have all sorts of things I want to add on to this and also disclaimers. And the one disclaimer, well, the one thing that I want to say is that I feel like I kind of shit on, on Rye and I feel bad about that. Because oh, totally right. Think you if you have a philosophy, you're probably crushing it as a parent. No, I don't think you shit on it. Okay. I just, I think you made it clear that it, it wasn't for you. That's all. Yeah. So I think you're going to get some hate mail. I probably am. Wait, so Jocelyn, you can add more. I can go and you guys can keep talking about it. No way. I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth even more if we keep going. And you won't be here to go, no. (laughs) Also, tell her about that we're launching, we're opening the um, resilience-based parenting again. Can you do that while I go? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we're opening I'm leaving. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, come back soon. soon. Real soon. Okay, I will. Okay. All right. Um, yes, we're opening. So is this airing next Thursday? Uh, Halston, when is this airing? Oh, hi, Halston. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, our cart will be open then. For okay. Parenting. Um, um, but if anybody wants on the mailing list for the, or if anybody wants to do the, the workshop, just get on our mailing list because um, we'll, we don't have a date set for that yet, but we will obviously mail it out to you. And when you get on our mailing list, you get all sorts of freebies anyway, so. Okay, can I sponsor some scholarships for the next of round? Course. You always can. Thank you so much. Of yeah, course. you want to say something about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is such an amazing tool for parents of of children of all ages. So I'm a big fan of this program, the Resilience-Based Parenting Program. I'm happy to sponsor two scholarships for any listener who um, maybe can't afford to participate but really wants to. So um how do they, how do they contact you again? Sure. So you actually, okay. I'm going to make it a little bit confusing for you guys. Cause I gave you resilience based parenting.com actually go to www.mcdermottmethod.com slash W O T P. So it's M A C D E R M O T T.com slash W O T P. And we'll give you a discount on the program. We'll give you some freebies. We'll get you on the mailing list for the workshop. And if you can't afford the the program, then just scroll down the website a little bit and there's a form to fill out for a scholarship. And as soon as there's a scholarship opportunity that opens up, we will reach out to you. It's just, it's really on, you know, honor system, first come, first served. Keep in mind that, you know, if you're taking a scholarship, please make sure you need the scholarship. Um, yes, please make sure a, you need it. Don't take it from someone else who needs it if you don't right. really need it. And we have um, some really, really great people through, you know, listeners from, from, from wife of the party who have reached out to us who, you know, really appreciate the program and needed it. And were you know, so, so lovely with, um, you know, talking to us about, about their experience and, 
And it's been great. So thank you for doing that, Leanne. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to support my two friends and I'm happy to support something I really genuinely believe in. I think it's, I still read my lessons every week and I love them. They're so great. It's such a moment too to just sit and reflect on where you're succeeding and where you can improve. It's that, that in and of itself is awesome. So I think, I think I have to go. I think Bert needs this board now at 10 o'clock. So I have to go, but thank you so much. Thank you for everything. So good to see you. Let's do it again soon. Okay. Bye you guys. Okay. Bye. We should get together